are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the hosts who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when the host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalted themselves will be humbled, and those who humbled themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to the host, When you give the luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, and the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Thank you so much, Layla. Appreciate it. If you all want to be encouraged as we navigate some challenging times, talk to a middle school or high school student. They have been such an encouragement to me and to see the ways that they have walked through this with resiliency and faith and trust has been so neat to see the ways that they continue to encourage me. And everything about their high school and middle school experience has kind of been turned upside down. Even their lunchroom experience is so different right now. The question for you, and for some of us, this question might require thinking a little bit farther back down the road, but I want you to picture your high school lunchroom. What did it look like? What was painted on the walls? What did it smell like? Maybe you don't want to remember what it smelled like. Who did you sit with? Did the people that you sat with, did that change throughout your high school career? I was thinking back to my high school cafeteria in Little Ripon, Wisconsin. Ripon High School, there's a big orange tiger painted on the wall. My friends and I, we had a table that was a round table smack dab in the middle. So like, imagine like where Fred's sitting. It was smack dab in the middle of the cafeteria. And freshman year, my group of friends and I started sitting at this table And every day at 11.21, when that bell rang, we would be at that table with our lunch boxes and our trays, ready to talk about boys and jobs at Pizza Hut and, you know, all of the drama. And then senior year rolls around. We must have been a couple minutes late that day as we walked in full force, lunch boxes and trays in hand. And there was a group of freshman girls at our table. Mm -mm. We were not having it. 
I like to think that we asked politely, but honestly, I do not remember. All I remember is we walked up to that table, and within a couple minutes, the entire freshman girl table had moved to a different place in the lunchroom. Now, I don't know that they remember this day, but I clearly do. And as I think about it, like, we might think, like, well, that seems fair. Like, they were underclassmen, they were freshmen, you were seniors, but who decided that seniors had more rights to a lunch table than freshmen? As I think about this story, I think about how Jesus has invited us to live a life of humility instead of following culture's cues of who's right or who's on top or who has more rights to something. So we're going to look today at our text from Luke 14. Layla read for us, verse 7 through 14. And Jesus turns the table, so to speak, on the Pharisees and the guests that he's eating with. And Jesus is at the home of one of the rulers of the Pharisees. And last week, Bjorn spoke to what happens right before Jesus tells the story that we're going to hear today. If you recall, Jesus has just healed a man who had abnormal swelling. And he healed him on the Sabbath. So that's already happened at the beginning of this meal. And the people in the room are probably already on edge, sort of like waiting to see what's going to happen next. After all, a Jewish man had just broken the law, and he'd also healed someone right before their very eyes. I think it's interesting that it tells us that Jesus was there to eat bread just seems like an interesting detail to me. So Jesus is there to eat bread. And it says that he was being watched closely. What we quickly notice is that Jesus is also watching closely. He's also observing what's going on, what's happening in the room. And he watched as people walked into the room and picked their seats. He noted how each of the guests chose their seat at the meal. But instead of calling them out directly, he tells a story. He says, when you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit down in the best place in case someone more honorable than you is invited. The host might come and say to you, you need to give up your place. And then, use the word humiliated, I think it is like the walk of shame, You have to stand up and take the walk of shame to a less important seat. Instead, when you are invited, go to the lowest place so that when the host comes and says to you that you can move to a better seat, you will have glory in the presence of those who are at the table with you. What's interesting about Jesus' approach in this story is that he doesn't negate that this system is in place, this social structure, but instead he addresses how to navigate the social setting in which they find themselves. And then the purpose of the story or the punchline or maybe the punch in the gut comes next. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. As I read this story, the picture that came to my mind was being on an airplane. Imagine that someone with an economy ticket sits down in first class. 
the person with a first-class ticket is escorted to their seat by the flight attendant who promptly asks you to move, and then you take the walk of shame to your economy seat. How different is it when you're sitting in your economy seat and the flight attendant comes and tells you that they have a spot for you in first class? This has only happened to me once, but it was one of the best days ever. Do you think that you've just won the lottery or something? Story time with Jesus doesn't end with this story that he tells. You look back at the text, he turns to the host, the Pharisee, this person who is committed to keeping the law, to doing things right. And Jesus looks at him and says, when you host a party, okay, he's at a party being hosted by this person. Just keep that in mind. When you host a party, don't ask your friends, your relatives, your rich neighbors to come. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Invite all of the people who can never repay you, never ask you back over for a meal, and you will be blessed. Now, not unlike the high school lunchroom, meals in the first century world were highlighting social disparities. But what we see in this second story, especially, is a desire that Jesus has to disallow this class mentality. The poor and the powerless should be welcome at the table with the Pharisee and the religious leaders. And we see that Jesus' call to inclusion echoes the mission statement laid out in Luke 4.18 that we've referenced throughout this series on Luke says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. And don't you hear that same language from Jesus' story? That he is about inviting the poor and the blind. And this idea that the poor would be blessed, that Jesus would have come for them, would have been inconceivable to Greeks and Romans. They believed that because the poor could not access things because they couldn't afford them, that they were more likely to lie, cheat, and steal. And the wealthy didn't have to because they could afford not to. And today, we are used to a society where upward mobility is possible. And Jesus is speaking at a time where social mobility could come through wealth, but the majority of people never climbed the social ladder because the Greeks and the Romans and the ruling classes saw it as the duty of every citizen to preserve the boundaries of class, to keep things in order based on which class you were born into. Social status affected every area of life in the New Testament era, including meals. Someone named Jeffers wrote this book, The Greco-Roman World of the New Testament Era. And he says, a person's place at the table and the quality of the food served depended on the person's status. So imagine you go to a dinner and there are people on one side of the room who are eating steak and lobster, and people on the other side of the room are eating McDonald's. Now, some of you might secretly think, well, I would want the McDonald's. 
Maybe that's not a fair assessment, but I think it starts to give us a picture of the kind of ways that social status in this world affected everything, including meals and including dinners. Jesus' teaching is a significant reversal from cultural norms, and this is a theme that we see over and over in Luke, this theme of reversal. Jesus taking things and turning them upside down. But what this is not is a lesson in earning God's favor through strategic seating charts. Instead, it's an invitation to life with Jesus. And there are two invitations that stood out to me as I read this text. And the first is this. Jesus invites us to make room at the table for all, especially those who could never repay us. Jesus' care and concern is so clearly for the least of these. What does this sound like today? What would Jesus be telling the Pharisee? I wonder if Jesus would say something like, when you host a party, invite the incarcerated. Invite those who don't have access to health care or education. Invite the homeless, refugees and immigrants, orphans, like the kids we support in Rogi Village. Invite those affected by racial injustice. Invite those who can never repay you. Responding to this invitation of Jesus is going to look different in all of our lives. And it's going to mean looking around and seeing who are the least of these that Jesus has placed in our paths. And instead of physically inviting people over for dinner right now, it looks like maybe dropping dinner off at someone's door, packing meals for Feed My Starving Children, sponsoring a child in Rogi Village, listening to a coworker who has a different set of beliefs or background. There's so many ways that Jesus could be inviting us to pay attention to who it is he's asking us to make room for at the table. Where is Jesus' invitation to you today? How could you make room at the table for someone who could never repay you? The second invitation is this. Jesus invites us to live with a posture of humility. Humility is an attitude that is fundamental to discipleship, to becoming more like Jesus. We see verses about humility throughout the Bible. Proverbs talks about humility being the fear of the Lord. Philippians says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Colossians and 1 Peter both talk about this idea of being clothed with humility. Something to be put on. We talked about reversal a minute ago. And isn't humility the opposite of our natural human inclinations towards pride? Isn't humility the opposite of how we are wired? You're probably familiar with the comedian Jeff Foxworthy, who does the, you might be redneck if. Don't worry, I'm going somewhere with this. Like, you might be a redneck if you put AstroTurf in the back of your pickup. Bjorn, I didn't have this conversation. I don't know if he's ever put AstroTurf in the back of his pickup. Or you might be a redneck if you drink from a garden hose daily. 
There are lots of them. There's like whole calendars. You can like read a different one every day if you want. But I started thinking, you might be human if you've called shotgun to sit in the front seat, you've budged or cut in line, might be human if you peruse the dessert table and take in the biggest or most appetizing piece. You might be human if you've argued that you were right when you knew you were wrong. You might be human if you've seen someone who is homeless and you had the thought sweep across your mind, why don't they just get a job? And I could raise my hand on each one of these. And none of these are things that we are proud of. And they don't speak directly to what qualifies us as humans, but they do speak to this mess, to the sin that lives inside us, to the pride in our lives. And they illustrate that when we examine ourselves, we see that pride that so often oozes out of our hearts and into our relationships with God and each other. Jesus invites us to a life of humility, and out of our own sinful nature, we cannot do it by ourselves. That's not what oozes out of us naturally. We can't just muster up more humility, but it's something that God initiates in our lives. And this reality that God initiates faith and we get to respond was one that played a part in shifting Martin Luther's understanding of faith. And it would contribute to the reformation of the church that Bjorn mentioned at the beginning of the service. He said, we might immediately think of October 31st being Halloween, um, but it's also the day when Luther pinned the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door, which would have this ripple effect throughout the church that we celebrate as Reformation Day. And from reading scripture, Luther realized that humility wasn't a virtue that earned grace, but a necessary response to the gift of grace. Do you catch that? Humility is not a virtue that earned grace, but a necessary response to the grace that God has already given us. In other words, it is God at work in us that orients our hearts toward a posture of humility. We cannot just become more humble. We are, after all, humans living in this broken world. So outside of saying, God, make me more humble, which is a prayer that is critical to our lives, how do we learn humility? How do we respond to these invitations of Jesus? The invitation is out there. How do we respond? The humility, like anything, is learned through practice. It takes practice to form new habits in any area of our lives, doesn't it? And the same is true of humility. Maybe you've heard that doing something is just like riding a bike. You'll naturally jump back on because you learned how to ride a bike a long time ago, and it'll just click as soon as you get back on that bike. Well, I'd like to think humility is like that, but it's really not. I think it's more like trying to learn how to ride the backwards brain bicycle. I don't know if you've heard of it. So this picture, it looks like a normal bicycle. Except the engineers who designed it made it so that the handlebars work the opposite way that bicycles usually work. 
when you turn the handlebars to the left, it actually points the bike to the right and vice versa. So like you have to use a different part of your brain to be able to ride this bike. Like you have to rewire your brain because we're so used to it working the opposite way. There's a guy named Destin Sandlin, and he's an actual rocket scientist. And his engineer friends built this bike to challenge him. Anybody have any guesses as to how long it took Destin to learn how to ride the backwards bike? Eight months. It took him eight months to be able to get on this bike and to pedal even a few pedals down the street. And he knew the physics of the backwards bike. Like he understood in his brain how it worked, but it took repeated practice and a rewiring of the neural pathways in his brain to do something that seems so relatively simple. Now, just in case you're wondering, for only $600, you can own this backwards brain bike. You can buy one online, and I don't think they're sold out like most bikes were during the pandemic. But learning humility is like this, isn't it? It takes practice. Jesus knew this is not an overnight process. We practice humility by living out Jesus' invitation to make room at the table, through spending time with him in his word, like Luther did, by saying words like, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And I don't know about you, but this is an area of my life that I find I'm so rusty in, like I'm all out of practice because I have let my pride run my life and try to control it instead of letting God control it. And I want to suggest today that there might be no better time to practice humility than in the world we are living right now. You might have heard that there is an election this week. Some would say that it's the most important election of our lifetime. You might also notice that that is commonly said around every election. But don't worry, we are not going to spend time discussing political parties or how to vote but I do want us to be challenged by Jesus' countercultural message that could not be more relevant for us today in 2020, the weekend before the election. Jesus invites us to a life of humility in every area of our lives, including how we think, speak, and act when it comes to politics. There is a woman named Tish Harrison Warren. And she is an author and an Anglican priest in the North American church. And I was reading an article that she wrote for Christianity Today. It's kind of a lengthy quote, but it just seems like there's so much in here. She says, A robustly Christian political theology requires that Christians become a different kind of people whose lives bear witness to Jesus in ways that the world finds astonishing, perplexing, and unrecognizable. We should look so much like Jesus as we engage with politics that it's almost unrecognizable to the world. She goes on to say, in order to begin this work, we need postures and practices. We need postures of humility. There's that word. Postures of humility, of truthfulness, joy, kindness, and love for our enemies. Postures that are profoundly lacking on both sides of the aisle. 
The deepest divide in American politics is not between right or left, but between those who are committed to these postures in word and deed and those who are not. How do we begin this work of bearing witness, of pointing people to Jesus in our world in the days and months ahead? How do we embody this posture of humility? And what are some specific practices that we can put into place? There are three that come to mind. just want to mention briefly. I think the first one is to practice acknowledging. Acknowledging that we all have blind spots. We have inconsistencies. We have misinformation. And as we acknowledge that we each have these, we can be more ready to give space for people who have different perspectives. We refrain from being lazy and making assumptions about people. We can stop and we can acknowledge our own blind spots. The second is the practice of asking. Just asking people about their stories, about understanding where they're coming from. These practices, right, these don't just apply to political conversations, but I think that they apply to all of life and what it looks like to practice humility. That we ask people so we can understand where they're coming from, and then we listen. We genuinely listen. And this is so hard to do, isn't it? It's so hard to listen to someone and not think about the next thing in our head that we want to say. But what would it look like to acknowledge our blind spots, to ask people their stories and understand where they're coming from? And lastly, to pray. I think embodying this posture of humility absolutely must include prayer. It looks like praying that Jesus would teach us the same lesson that he taught the Pharisees and the guests at dinner that day. It looks like spending time on our knees talking to God about stuff. Your thought about how when you're on your knees in prayer, this physical posture is a reflection of our heart's posture when we pray. And this might be a practice you want to try this week. It's just praying from your knees. And maybe you can't get down on your knees anymore. Or, you know, like when you're 34 weeks pregnant and this just doesn't go that easily anymore. Maybe that's not a posture that's going to work for you this week. What is a posture of prayer that reminds you that God is God and you are not? You pray and ask God, God, give me that humility that I need this week in conversations. There are days and moments where practicing humility is going to feel like trying to ride that backwards brain bicycle. It's counterintuitive and it's countercultural in so many ways, but it is the way and invitation of Jesus, and I can't think of a better way to live. Today we get to experience table fellowship together. And it's not unlike the picture from Luke 14 of Jesus' meal at the Pharisee's home. Remember, he's eating bread. And in this practice of taking communion, we have an opportunity to learn through experience. The communion table, we are reminded that there is room at the table for everyone. 
Jesus welcomed all people to the table. Social status didn't matter. Political parties didn't matter. There is no division in Christ. The table is for all, just like in the parable that he told the Pharisees that day at dinner. No one comes to the table because we are good enough on our own, because we are humble enough or anything like that. But it's only through Christ that we come and we get to receive forgiveness. Doesn't it take some humility to say, Jesus, I need you. I need you as my Savior and my rescuer. And at the communion table, we are also experiencing humility through obedience. We engage in an act of obedience as we take the cup and eat the bread. We focus our attention on Jesus' death on the cross, the clearest example of this posture of humility in Christ's life. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes this about Jesus' life and death. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Humility is the way of the cross. It is the way of Jesus. It is the posture by which we experience more of the life that Jesus intended us to live. It takes prayer and it takes practice. In Luke 22, Luke records another significant dinner conversation. He describes what happens the night before Jesus would go to the cross. He's in the upper room, and he's having another meal with his disciples. Sometimes I'm comforted by the fact that Jesus liked to sit around with his friends and eat meals. I don't know about you. He would take communion with them that night, and he would take the bread And he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Every time you eat this, remember me. In the same way, Jesus took the cup. And he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. He said, every time you drink this, Remember me. We're going to say a prayer together, and then we get to eat this meal as we remember together and celebrate what Christ has done for us on the cross. Jesus, we are more grateful than we have words to speak for your life and your death, and your resurrection. Jesus, we pray that as we eat this meal today, that you would mold us into people who are more humble, who look more like you. We are humbled to eat
this meal together. We pray all this in your name. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at theychurch.org.